When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Congress sending a message right now to seditionists. The lead starts right now. The House is voting right this second to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress and refer the matter to the Department of Justice for prosecution as the former president desperately tries to keep secret White House records. President Biden about to face the American people in a special CNN town hall. Will he have a deal to show them legislatively by the time he takes the stage? Plus, it may be the last chance to find out what really happened in Gabby Petito's final moments after police find human remains. What's inside the notebook that Brian Laundrie might have left behind? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news in the politics lead right now. The U.S. House of Representatives is voting to hold top Trump ally Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress after Bannon refused to comply with a subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee. Today's vote puts on full display just how far lawmakers are willing to go to penalize those who refuse to cooperate with the investigation into what was a deadly insurrection on their own workplace. But the vote is expected to fall largely along party lines. And Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the Select Committee, is criticizing her own party for downplaying the deadly attack. There are people in this chamber right now who were evacuated with me and with the rest of us on that day during that attack. People who now seem to have forgotten the danger of the moment, the assault on the Constitution, the assault on our Congress. The decision to prosecute Bannon will ultimately be made by the Attorney General and the Justice Department. When asked this morning by lawmakers, Attorney General Merrick Garland said the DOJ will, quote, do what it always does, apply the facts and the law and make a decision, unquote. Let's get right to CNN's Ryan Nobles. He's live on Capitol Hill for us. Ryan, uh, we know that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, the two members of Congress who are Republican, who are on this committee, we know how they voted. Will any other Republicans, have any other Republicans, voted to refer this criminal contempt of Congress charge. Yeah, Jake, in fact, they have. Even though this vote, as you point out, has really been largely along partisan lines, there are now eight Republicans that have voted to refer the criminal contempt of Congress charge uh, to Steve Bannon, of Steve Bannon, to the Department of Justice. You mentioned uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, also Representatives Meyer, Gonzalez, Simpson, Upton, 
Catco and Mace all voting in the affirmative. Those eight votes, along with the Democratic majority, assuring that this criminal contempt referral will pass. Thank you. Thank you very much. Steve Bannon, a longtime advisor of former President Donald Trump and the man who predicted this on the day before January 6th. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Is now in a legal predicament. The House of Representatives set to refer him to the Department of Justice for criminal contempt of Congress because he's refused to comply with the subpoena of the January 6th Select Committee. On January 5th, Steve Bannon said uh, on his podcast that all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. He promised something unprecedented, unforeseen, uh, and told everybody to buckle up or fasten on or whatever. Uh, I mean, you tell me. The vote now triggers a process in the hands of the Department of Justice. They will decide if Bannon's defiance is worthy of prosecution. If convicted, Bannon could face fines and jail time. Attorney General Merrick Garland will have the final call. The department recognizes the important oversight role that this committee, the House of Representatives, and the Senate play uh, with respect to um, the executive branch. He was on Capitol Hill today being grilled by Republicans over things like the independence of the DOJ and conflicts at school board meetings. But when Democrats asked about Bannon, he refused to tip his hand. Department of Justice will do what it always does in such circumstances. It will apply the facts and the law and make a decision consistent with the principles of prosecution. Meanwhile, the committee continues to negotiate with other Trump allies to get them to cooperate with their investigation. They've postponed depositions for former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Pentagon official Cash Patel. Dan Scavino, the former Deputy White House Chief of Staff, is now scheduled to appear before the committee on November 4th, as some lawmakers sound the alarm about future elections. Even now, however, the ex-president and his allies continue to cast doubt on the last election, and appear to be drafting a plan to overturn the next one. And next time, we may not be so lucky. All this while Trump himself continues to peddle false rhetoric about the 2020 election and attempts to whitewash the violence and chaos of January 6th. The insurrection took place on November 3rd, Trump wrote in a statement. January 6th was a protest. And we're just learning now an update to that vote total. Uh, it remains eight Republicans uh, that voted yes, although it was Representative Simpson changed uh, his vote to a nay. Uh, Fitzpatrick being the other Republican uh, that voted uh, to refer this criminal contempt charge of Congress uh, to the Department of Justice. And Jake, Steve Bannon, the man that is at the center of all of this controversy, he said very little about uh, the Congress's attempt to bring him before the January 6th Select Committee. He's just sent letters through his attorney to the committee saying that he wasn't going to cooperate tonight. He will be giving a speech in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, to a group of Republicans there showing that he doesn't seem to be all that concerned as to what's happening here in Washington. Jake? Or trying to convey that, at least. Ryan Nobles from Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Here to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. She's the vice chair of the House Judiciary Committee. So, Congresswoman, the House is voting right now. Uh, we're told that the, there are eight Republicans who have voted, along with the Democrats, uh, to refer the matter of criminal contempt of Congress to the Department of Justice. Uh, They include, not surprisingly, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, uh, but also Congressman Upton of Michigan, Meyer of Minnesota, Gonzalez of Ohio, Katko of New York, Mace of South Carolina, and your fellow suburban Philadelphian, uh, Congressman Fitzpatrick uh, of Pennsylvania. Um, What's your reaction to the vote so far? 
Uh, I'm not surprised that it is along party lines, and I'm pleased that we have at least eight Republicans who see the truth, who recognize uh, the essential oversight role that Congress plays, and that we should not be fooled with by uh, the likes of Steve Bannon. Uh, so we will uh, refer this matter over by way of this vote to uh, the Attorney General, to the Department of Justice, to hold Mr. B Bannon accountable to his subpoena and to make sure that we continue our oversight role into a heinous set of crimes that took place right here on January the 6th. Earlier this week, Congresswoman Cheney said that Bannon's refusal to participate uh, appears to reveal uh, that Trump was personally involved in the planning and execution of January 6th. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I've been saying all along, anybody who has any knowledge of what led up to January 6th, what happened on January 6th, or what happened after January 6th, when, of course, you know it took hours for the president to actually call uh, the rioters off, as he told them he loved them, uh, anybody should come forward. They should be patriots. So, Mr. Bannon, I, I don't expect patriotism out of him, but the other members of Congress, Mr. Meadows, who was chief of staff, uh, these folks need to come forward and tell the truth. And when they don't, when they try to evade subpoena and lawful process, it can say nothing else than they have something to hide. I want to remind our audience uh, what Steve Bannon was saying around that time. Here is a clip from his podcast uh, just one day before the January 6th insurrection. Take a listen. I'll tell you this. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. The war room, a posse, you have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Let's get ready. Do you have evidence or knowledge to suggest that that's more than just bluster? And hyperbole. Uh, what the evidence is is what happened here on that day. Uh, you can see that he's not just saying it ought to be interesting. He said it will be hell. And I was here that day. It literally was like a scene from hell where Americans attacked Americans. And what is shocking to me, because, you know, I was uh, in the hearing with Attorney General Merrick Garland as we were leading up to this vote. I was also a participant in the floor debate uh, on the contempt uh, resolution that we are voting on right now. Uh, what we have to remember is we have to protect our democracy. You know, I, I quoted uh, Elijah Cummings, who said, when we are dancing with the angels, what will we be remembered for? What will we have done to protect our precious democracy? Uh, and so that's what I say to the strange arguments coming out of the other side of the aisle from most of them, who are, are talking as though they're not even in the same hearing, as though they're not even talking about the same piece of legislation. How is it that they would put their head in the sand uh, and not want to hold everyone accountable who attacked our democracy. Let's be honest. There is a, a complicitness about the silence. There is an appalling silence from so many Republicans. I hope that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger can reclaim that party. I'm heartened by the six other votes, and maybe there will be more by the time this vote tallies. Uh, but the Republican Party is in a death spiral. Congresswoman Madeline Dean from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, thank you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Will Joe Biden be empty-handed when he steps on the CNN Town Hall stage this evening? The late curveball thrown into negotiations on his massive economic plan. And in just a few minutes, a key vote that could have millions more COVID booster shots going into arms by tomorrow. Stay with us.
We have some breaking news for you now. In just a few hours, President Biden's going to take the stage in Baltimore for CNN Town Hall. But just now, the House of Representatives voted to uh, hold Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress. Uh, The vote, I believe, was 229 to 202 with nine Republicans voting with the Democrats uh, and uh, Congresswoman Herrera Butler was the ninth one in addition to the eight that I mentioned in the previous block. Um, President Biden is preparing right now to take the stage in Baltimore, Maryland for a CNN town hall. Capitol Hill aides say they are hoping to have a framework that he can present to the American people this evening on what exactly will be in his compromise plan to expand the social safety net and combat climate change. Before that could happen, of course, Democratic lawmakers are still trying to negotiate all the final details behind the scenes. So let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Collins, who is at the town hall site in Baltimore, as well as CNN's Lauren Fox, who's on Capitol Hill. Lauren, let me start with you. It appeared Democrats were making progress, uh, but now we're learning that what's called the pay-for is the way to pay for everything. Uh, There's debate over that. We're learning that uh, the planned tax increases on corporations and on the top tax bracket, wealthy individuals, which was a key way to pay for the provisions in this bill, we're now hearing that might be off the table? Well, Jake, remember, the Democrats have campaigned for years on the idea of raising the corporate tax rate after Republicans passed their 2017 tax bill. They also have campaigned on raising taxes for the wealthiest Americans. You hear Democrats talk all the time about everyone having and paying their fair share in the U.S. tax system. Well, Kirsten Cinema, a moderate Democrat from the state of Arizona, has been telling the White House she is opposed to an increase in the corporate tax rate as well as some increases on wealthy individuals. That is a key sticking point now for Democrats because they are scrambling to try to figure out where they are going to get this revenue for to pay for this bill. And you heard the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi say earlier today that this bill is going to be paid for. And she left on the table a bunch of options that may have to be used instead of raising the corporate tax rate. But I asked one progressive just a little while ago, Pramila Jayapal, about what she thought of the idea of not including a corporate tax rate increase in this bill. She said it would be outrageous because she argued this is a popular provision. This is also something that Democrats have made the foundation of their campaign, both for the White House and in congressional races around the country. So it is a huge issue right now on Capitol Hill. And that framework, it still doesn't exist. Jake? Kaylin, White House officials just met with Senators Cinema and Manchin, the holdouts. Um, what is the president's plan for ironing out these last few details? Well, clearly, of course, this is critical to actually having a plan and having a framework by tomorrow, which the White House is counting on just as much as Democrats are, of course, certainly tonight as well. And so when it comes to Senator Cinema, they have basically been in touch with Senator Cinema or her staff nonstop over the last several days as they are trying to put this framework together, see what Senator Cinema and Manchin will come to. Senator Cinema says that she has been very clear with the White House about what her priorities are and what her red lines essentially are when it comes to this, though she has not, of course, been so publicly when it comes to telling people. And so after this meeting, she said she could not say whether or not there is going to be an agreement by tomorrow. She said she wouldn't negotiate in the press when was if she was asked about whether or not she was still against increasing taxes on corporations. And so the White House says that they believe she is negotiating in good faith. 
course, there are several people in her own party, as CNN has reported today, that would not agree with her. And they actually have a lot of frustration with how she has been negotiating. But the White House has to kind of tread balance lightly here because they need her to vote for this. Of course, if she doesn't vote, that will derail the president's economic agenda. And so they're kind of in this balancing act of trying to talk to her about what it is she'll be on board with, but also it's sending them scrambling at the last minute as they are trying to figure out another way to pay for this bill, potentially. And Lauren, CNN has new reporting today about uh, legislators growing frustration with Senator uh, Cinema, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, not just among progressives, but even some of her home state colleagues. Well, that's exactly right. Our colleague Manu Raju reporting earlier that one of those colleagues, Ruben Gallego, isn't even saying if he would rule out a primary challenge against her in 2024, saying that people back in the state are unhappy with the position she's taken and that she's not aligning herself with the politics of Arizona. That coming from your own colleague in the House of Representatives and someone who could potentially run against you, I mean, that's a significant divide within the Democratic Party and within the Democratic Party in the state of Arizona, Jake. It's different also from what Congressman Gallego told me just a few weeks ago. He was uh, rather deferential to Senator Sinema then, but since then there's been much more frustration with her voice. Caitlin, uh, aides on Capitol Hill are hoping to have a framework that President Biden can present to, to voters during his town hall on CNN this evening. What are you learning about how the president will sell his plans to the American people? This is the struggle for the White House, Jake, because the president has been on the road. He was last night in Scranton, Pennsylvania, trying to sell this deal. But, of course, the specifics still aren't there. So it's hard to sell something when you don't know the full picture of what it's going to look like or how it's going to be paid for. And that's kind of been the struggle for them because, for example, one thing that the president has touted time and time again was that he wanted to have two years of free community college included in this plan. We now know he has told progressive Democrats earlier this week during a meeting in the Oval Office that is likely not going to make the final cut. And so yesterday even he was doing this this kind of dance where he is saying, I want the child tax credit, but not mentioning specifics because, of course, we now know it may only be extended for one year. And so that's the struggle for the White House, though they are hoping to focus just on the larger picture and telling voters tonight what's in here, how they could benefit from what they do know is going to be in here, like universal pre-K, billions for climate change, of course, all of those factors and the expansion for Medicare. So that is likely what you're going to hear President Biden focus on here tonight in Baltimore. All right, Caitlin Collins and Lauren Fox, thanks to both of you. And the town hall with President Biden starts tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Any moment, a CDC panel voting on booster shots. That could impact tens of millions of Americans. That's next. lead any moment a group of cdc advisors are going to vote on whether to recommend booster shots for eligible adults who got the moderna or the johnson and johnson vaccine if that group of advisors votes yes then the recommendation will go to cdc director rochelle walensky's desk for the final okay as cnn's athena jones reports those eligible could get their boosters as soon as this weekend decision day The CDC's vaccine advisor set to vote this hour on whether to recommend COVID vaccine booster shots from Moderna and Johnson & Johnson and who should get them after the FDA authorized their emergency use. 
If the CDC panel and the CDC director sign off, people could start getting these additional shots within days. I think that there is growing recognition that the vaccines that we have are excellent, but they'll provide you with even better protection and longer-lasting protection if you were to get a booster dose. The CDC also expected to recommend the mixing and matching of vaccines, meaning people could get a booster dose of any of the three approved vaccines after the FDA okayed it. The mix and match really gives a good deal of flexibility to people in whatever it is that they want to choose. This as new data from Pfizer show a booster dose of the company's vaccine is 95.6 percent effective. Meanwhile, the CDC says more people are getting booster doses than are getting their first dose, convincing more of the 64 million people who are eligible for a shot but haven't gotten one to get one will be key to slowing COVID spread. Key to slowing COVID spread, vaccinating some 28 million children ages 5 to 11, some of whom have suffered gravely from the virus. Fundamentally, we've seen over the last 18 months that, you know, COVID has not been benign uh, among children. Even though they do better than older adults, we've had hundreds of children who have lost their lives, thousands who have been hospitalized and whose lives have been disrupted uh, because of COVID-19. We want to protect our kids. We want them to get their lives back. FDA vaccine advisors will meet Tuesday to discuss authorization of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine in 5 to 11-year-olds. I hope that the, the vast majority of parents will realize the real benefit for the children to get vaccinated. Meanwhile, pushback to vaccine requirements continues. In Illinois, a group of parents sued 150 school districts over mask and quarantine mandates. And the fight rages on in the Sunshine State. I think we have got to stand up for people's jobs and their livelihoods. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis now calling a special legislative session to ban COVID vaccine requirements in the state. At the end of the day, you know, you shouldn't be discriminated against based on basically based on your health decisions. And there is more news about the uneven impact of COVID in the U.S. According to a study published by JAMA Network Open, in the first year of the pandemic, racial and ethnic minority groups, including Hispanic, American Indian, Black and Asian people, were more likely than the white population to experience severe COVID-19 infection, requiring hospitalization, admission to the intensive care unit, and leading to death in the hospital. Jake? All right, Athena Jones in New York City. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, good to see you as always. Uh, any second, the CDC... Uh, advisory panel could vote on authorizing boosters for the Moderna vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And we just got the first batch of data on Pfizer's booster uh, efficacy. What's the significance of all this? Well, th- this is interesting, Jake, because what we had heard from Pfizer was mostly that their antibodies went up in these people who received the booster. So now we're getting some real-world data. Did those you know, elevated antibodies make a difference? They looked at 10,000 people uh, over the summer during the Delta surge. So this covers Delta. And what they found was that people who got the booster versus people who got a placebo, uh, there was a big difference. There was only five people who developed symptoms in the actual booster group versus about 109 people who who, uh, had symptoms in the placebo group. So that was some data now to show, look, we're not just increasing the antibodies when we give the booster, but it makes a difference in terms of the likelihood of people getting sick. I want you to take a listen to Dr. Fauci when he was asked about the confusing messaging uh, some people are hearing from health agencies when it comes to boosters. 
I think now with the announcement that was just made from the FDA and the recommendations that will almost certainly come imminently, very soon, certainly from the CDC, that things will really be very clear of what people can and should do. What's the clearest way to, to present booster guidance to the American people, do you think? If you're someone who is vulnerable to COVID, you should get a booster. You could be vulnerable by virtue of your age, 65 and older. You could be vulnerable because of pre-existing conditions, and I'll put a list of those up in a second, or you could be vulnerable because you're at high risk of exposure, frontline worker, things like that. That's uh, what the FDA is basically saying with regard to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. J&J, a little different. They're basically saying if you're an adult, 18 or older, you should go ahead and get a booster if you receive the J&J vaccine at least two months after the single dose. But Jake, you know, again, who is considered vulnerable? Let's just put up this list for a second. Uh, people who have all sorts of different pre-existing conditions, including cancer, including heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, obesity. Jake, when, when you do the math on this, you're talking probably, you know, more than half the population, adult population in the United States. So there's a lot of people who will probably be eligible for boosters, and, and that's who's now going to be recommended to get one. I have some questions for you about Florida. The, the governor uh, of Florida, Republican Ron DeSantis, is calling for a special session of the legislature there to, to block the Biden administration plan to impose vaccine mandates on large companies. And we just heard in Athena's piece, Governor DeSantis say, at the end of the day, you shouldn't be discriminated against based on your health decisions. But it's not as simple as your health decisions, right? I mean, whether or not you get vaccinated affects other people's health potentially, right? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 is, that is the thing that I think has been true from the start and maybe gets missed a lot is that when you get the vaccine, if you're a vulnerable person, you certainly dramatically reduce the likelihood that you'll get sick, uh, that you'll, uh, you know, uh, have to be hospitalized. We can show that. I mean, you know, as much as we talk about the boosters, the real story is still primarily among the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated are far more likely uh, to end up in the hospital than the vaccinated. And there's this issue of transmission. I think one point that kind of gets misinterpreted a lot, Jake, is that people say, well, vaccine doesn't make a difference in terms of whether or not you can catch and spread the virus. That's not true. People who are vaccinated are about eight times or so less likely to become infected in the first place. So, yes, they can get infected, but far less likely to spread. And the, the ongoing pandemic, as you can see there, that blue line is primarily a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And, and I, well, that was my next question about Florida. The Surgeon General of Florida uh, said something about how uh, breakthrough infections were believed to be rare. And now we hear that they're common. And that shows that vaccines don't create safe workplaces. Um, and he said that's, you know, it's not backed up by science that vaccines create safe workplaces. But you, you, you're arguing that's incorrect. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, I think people expect things to be perfect. Nothing's perfect. The vaccines make a huge difference with regard to transmission. If I'm, if I'm spending time with a vaccinated group of people, the likelihood that the virus is circulating among us is dramatically lower. They're far less likely to be infected, and even if they are, they have a narrower window at which they might possibly transmit. It can still happen. That's why we hear stories, but far rarer, Jake. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Breaking news, brand new details about what exactly investigators found in the Florida Nature Park while they were searching for Brian Laundrie. That's next. Some breaking news for you in our national lead. Local police say that the apparent human remains discovered yesterday at a Florida nature reserve are skeletal remains and they are definitively human. 
CNN's Randy Kay joins us now live from Sarasota County, Florida. Randy, what else did the police say about the remains? Uh, hey there, Jake. Um, our, our colleague Layla Santiago just spoke with Northport Police, and what we're getting from that interview is, yes, indeed, a confirmation that these are human remains and skeletal remains. Uh, we're also told that clothing was found uh, alongside these remains, and the clothing is uh, consistent with what Brian Laundrie was believed to be wearing. Now, I spoke with a source close to this investigation uh, just yesterday who was telling me that uh, these remains do indeed look like they've been there for a while. This area had been underwater, and given the condition of the remains, it does look like it's going to take uh, a little bit of time to be able to officially identify them because of what was left of them. Also, Jake, I'm getting some new information today about this notebook. We know uh, that a notebook and a backpack was found along with uh, these human remains. Uh, this source close to the investigation telling me that this notebook was found outside the dry bag, as it's called. Uh, that bag was discovered by Chris Laundry, Brian Laundry's father, who was here uh, along with law enforcement searching for his son. Uh, the, ba- the bag was found by him, but, but I'm told that the notebook uh, was clearly wet and that they are going to use any means possible to dry it out before even opening it, but it is possibly salvageable, Jake. So, of course, uh, that could have some real information for the family, perhaps, if this is Brian Laundry. Uh, he might have written down what happened to Gabby Petito, and they may get some answers, Jake. All right, Randy Kay in Florida for us. Thank you so much. And our politics lead, one of Trump's big lie lawyers, is now in charge of elections in Texas. Today, Republican Governor Greg Abbott appointed a man named John Scott to be interim secretary of state, a position Scott can now hold without confirmation for about two years. Let's get to CNN's Diane Gallagher. And Diane, Scott, uh, people might remember, he represented uh, Trump's fake fraud claims in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That's right. It was a very brief tenure as uh, an attorney for the former president in his attempts to stop the certification of the 2020 election results in Pennsylvania. But it's also something that Governor Greg Abbott does not mention in his announcement, uh, saying that John Scott is his appointment to be the next secretary of state in Texas. I want to review a brief bit from that announcement. It says John understands the importance of protecting the integrity of our elections and building the Texas brand on an international stage. I am confident that John's experience and expertise will enhance his oversight and leadership over the biggest and most thorough election audit in the country. Now, look, Democrats today have been raising plenty of red flags, calling this an architect of the former president's big lie about election fraud in 2020. John Scott signed on to be an attorney for President Trump on around November 13th. He asked to withdraw his counsel on November 16th. So it wasn't a very long tenure again. But people in Texas, Democrats, civil rights and voting groups are already crying foul, saying that he does he has until 2023 and can serve in the interim over elections in the meantime. All right, Diane Gallagher, thanks so much. Breaking news about the American missionaries kidnapped in Haiti, the new threat from the kidnappers. That's next. Breaking tragic news in our world lead. The leader of the Haitian gang who kidnapped 17 missionaries for ransom now says he will kill the hostages if he does not get the ransom money he has demanded. A source tells CNN that the gang has provided proof that the hostages are still alive. CNN's Matt Rivers joins us now live from Port of Prince Haiti. Uh, Matt, you're breaking this news. What more do we know about this new demand? 
It's a pretty striking development, Jake, in a video that was posted to Facebook that CNN uh, is choosing not to show nor quote directly from uh, the leader of the 400 Mawazo gang, which is the gang that authorities say kidnapped these 17 missionaries here in Haiti over the weekend. He basically says that he is willing to kill these hostages if his demands for ransom money are not met. Uh, we can show you a picture of Wilson Joseph. Uh, he is the alleged leader of the 400 Mawazo gang from a wanted notice that authorities actually put out back in December of 2020. We know, according to a source, that his demands, at least so far, have been $1 million per uh, person, uh, which would total up to $17 million, Jake, in a total ransom demand. Uh, and he made this threat in a video that was taken, allegedly, at a funeral for fellow gang members. Uh, in the video, he says that these gang members were killed by Haitian police. But it is a very striking development, and it's something that we know, speaking to sources, in the Hades, uh, in Haiti's security forces, that they're taking this very seriously, and it shows you how tenuous these negotiations can be. Because just a few days ago, uh, we reported uh, from a source again that the calls that have taken place between the kidnappers and the Christian aid ministries, which is the group that these missionaries were working for, were calm. Uh, but obviously, this video, Jake, really changes the nature of these negotiations. Seventeen missionaries, including five children, and they're asking for a $17 million ransom. Matt Rivers, thanks so much. Also on our world lead, despite the more than 124,000 people evacuated from Kabul in the wake of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, many U.S. service members, well, they still have family in that country. Now, these are the relatives of Afghans who came to the United States and joined the military, many of them becoming U.S. citizens. And as CNN's Alex Marquardt reports for us now, as the Taliban cemented their control of the country, and seek to punish those with ties to the U.S., well, these family members of our service members are in extreme danger. It was from this quiet Virginia cul-de-sac that Fahim Massoud, a lieutenant in the National Guard, orchestrated a dangerous evacuation halfway around the world in Afghanistan. It was incredibly difficult. It was, I mean, I cannot tell you how many challenges, security challenges, you had to go through. The mission could not have been more personal. Massoud's family was desperately trying to get out. Lieutenant Massoud is an intelligence officer in the Illinois National Guard. He became a U.S. citizen after serving as an Afghan interpreter for American troops and then moving to the U.S. His family stayed in Afghanistan. As the Taliban took over, his parents and siblings needed to escape, their connection to him making them targets for the Taliban. Massoud's family headed to the Kabul airport, like thousands of others just as an ISIS suicide bomber attacked, killing almost 200 people, including U.S. troops. I thought they had definitely been killed immediately. I mean, I went into a panic, started calling my uh, sisters. They were okay, nearby, on a bus sent by the CIA. They waited at a gas station as Massoud, helped by a CIA contact inside, tried to find another way for them into the airport. A lot of my family members have worked for the U.S. government in the last 20 years in Afghanistan. I thought the process would be a lot uh, easier than it was. Massoud was desperate. He was cold calling everyone he could think of. I reached out to very, very senior government officials, uh, senators, congressmen and women, uh, a number of U.S. military generals, including General Mealy, uh, including General McConville. Who you didn't know. Who I did not know. And here is a, the most junior officer in the United States Army reaching out to these senior, senior government officials. 
his efforts underscoring the chaos and now the widespread criticism that the Biden administration has not done enough to evacuate the families of Afghan-American troops. If you look at you know, prioritizing, of course, any American citizen, but certainly family members of the United States military, uh, should be of the highest priority. Congressman Michael McCall believes there are around 100 family members of Afghan-American troops, like Massoud, still in Afghanistan. Our embassy is not there anymore. We have no military on the ground. And um, if we have to rely on the Taliban to get them out, that's not a good assurance. Massoud's calls worked. His family was directed to a secret CIA-controlled gate at the airport. But a State Department official refused to let them pass. As Massoud, a former CIA official, and a National Guard colonel all pleaded on the phone. I told him, look, this family is a special, I have a special case. And when he said, everybody's special, I said, you have to hear me. You have to know who I am and where I come from. Massoud managed to convince the official. His family was through, escorted to a waiting C-17. His sister's worried face turned to joy. They were on their way to the United States. I broke down and I said, I, I just can't believe that so many people came together for so many hours, for so many, essentially for so many days to make this happen. Lieutenant Massoud told us that he will never be the same again after this ordeal, trying to get his family out of Afghanistan. Jake, the point that he was making really here was that the official channels were not working. They were, in his words, overwhelmed. He had to do this himself with his own connections, the same way that so many have had to rely on these private operations to get themselves and their loved ones out of, out of Afghanistan. And there are at least three dozen or so people like Lieutenant Massoud. Thank you so much, Alex, for that important story. Uh, we're just a few hours away from a special CNN town hall with President Biden. Chances of getting a deal on his economic plan, well, they may have just plummeted, at least for the short term. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the guy with the best poker face in geopolitics all of a sudden acting a little weird on the world stage. What do Vladimir Putin's strange moves mean for the United States. And it's the race that could be the magic eight ball for the midterms and 2024. Two weeks out, the Virginia governor's battle is anyone's guess, and mail-in voting could be the deciding factor again. But first, leading this hour, we're just hours away from a special CNN town hall with President Joe Biden. Right now, it remains unclear whether he will be able to announce that he is delivering a deal to the American people when he takes that stage, with Democrats still haggling over an expansion of the social safety net in the ballpark of $2 trillion. A short time ago, the degree of difficulty took a giant leap with the number two Democrat in the Senate saying tax hikes on the wealthy and on corporations, which had been planned to help pay for this massive bill, might be off the table in order to get it passed. As CNN's Phil Mattingly reports for us, Democratic leaders in the House and Senate appeared confident today they could have a deal within the next 48 hours. But wildcard Joe Manchin tells CNN this afternoon he remains unconvinced. If you do well, we all do well. That's keeping the promise of America. President Biden going all in with an optimistic public push for his sweeping domestic agenda. The core of our administration's economic vision, and it's a fundamental paradigm shift for this nation. Even as he grapples with major hurdles ahead of tonight's 90-minute CNN town hall. Hello, hello, hello. It's good to be home. 
one day after a rally in his hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania. The House has been on schedule. Biden's top advisors and allies on Capitol Hill in an urgent scramble to reach an agreement by week's end. We've rounded the turn and we're almost to the stretch. Even as sources say Biden has inched closer to clinching an agreement with one of the key centrist holdouts, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, progress with the second, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, significantly slower going. Frustration with Sinema boiling over with progressives. Dear Senator Sinema. Five members of Sinema's unpaid Veterans Advisory Council resigning. And one House Democrat pulling from Saturday Night Live. Because I didn't come to Congress to make friends. To make a not-so-subtle point. Cinema's private opposition to tax rate increases on corporations and individuals setting off a scramble to pay for the bill. The bill will be fully paid for, and the matter is in the hands of our chairs of the Finance Committee and the uh, Ways and Means Committee. White House officials now talking with congressional tax writers, hoping to ease cinema's concerns. Her position is well known. And that position, well known as it is, is part of the reason White House officials were once again on Capitol Hill today. The president's top advisors meeting with Senators Manchin and Cinema, also meeting with the chairs of the tax writing committees, trying to figure out a way to get this deal together. Now, there's a lot of skepticism, Jake, about whether or not something can actually get done by week's end. But as one official here put it, now is not the time to take their foot off the gas. They are going to continue to push forward from the White House and from Democrats on Capitol Hill, Jake. All right, CNN's Philip Mattingly at the White House. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Here to discuss is Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. Uh, she is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and has been an integral part of these negotiations. So, Congresswoman, as you heard, the Senate ranking, uh, the second ranking Democrat in the Senate, Dick Durbin, just told CNN that he believes the proposed tax increases on the wealthiest individuals and the corporate tax increase, they're now off the table because Senator Kirsten Sinema... Uh, opposes them and they need her vote. Is this also your understanding? Well, Jake, it's good to good to see you. Good to be back with you. Um, I, I don't know that to be the case. Um, I will say that I agree with the speaker. I think this bill is going to be paid for. Um, and I will also say that, you know, we now have 49 Democrats in the Senate who are ready to do those tax increases. The American people overwhelmingly support them. And I would certainly hope that the last senator could could come along with us. But either way, we're going to get this thing paid for and we are going to get it done. Is there an alternate way to pay for it? When Senator Elizabeth Warren was on the show yesterday, uh, I asked her about cinema's opposition to the uh, highest uh, ranking uh, taxpayers uh, tax increase and the corporate tax increase. And she said, well, there she had a legislation that would make corporations pay at least something in taxes if they made profits that year, uh, a minimum tax for corporations. Is that one of the things being discussed? Like, what are what are other ways you can get Kirsten Cinema on board while also getting this bill passed? There is a whole set of options, and Senator Warren is absolutely right. I'm completely in favor of the real corporate profits tax um, that she has proposed. And there are some other ones as well. The Senator Wyden has put on the table. The Ways and Means Committee has a whole list of options. So I do think we will get this paid for. Um, and I think that there will be agreement around it. I, I do hope that it can include making the wealthiest corporations and the wealthiest individuals pay their share, fair share. I'll tell you, Jake, I have a lot of them in my state who have called me to say, you know what, we're willing to pay our fair share. We're okay with this. We think it's a good thing. So 
I'm not sure what the problem is here because we're not talking about something unreasonable. We're actually talking about something that used to exist before uh, the Trump tax cuts and rolling back the Trump uh, the Trump tax cuts. So hopefully we can we get that. But if not, listen, there's lots of ways to pay for this. That is not the problem. Um, we will get it done. President Biden has promised the American people that the bill will be entirely paid for and it will not cost anyone one penny if they make under $400,000 a year. Uh, are you going to be able to keep that promise uh, even without the tax increases that Kirsten Cinema opposes? Yes, we will keep that promise. I know how strongly the president feels about this. Um, I've met with him a couple of times this week. He has been fantastic on this issue. We're not going to increase taxes on people earning under 400000 We will find other ways to do it, and it will be paid for. And I hope, again, that it is just making the wealthiest pay their fair share. But we'll have to see where we get to. You have been meeting with Senator Manchin. Uh, you spoke to him again yesterday, I'm told. Have you spoken with Senator Sinema at all during any of these negotiations? Um, I spoke to her several weeks ago, but I haven't spoken to her recently. She's really been negotiating with the White House directly, and that's fine. I'm always available to meet with her if she wants to. And yes, I have had some very good conversations with Senator Manchin about where we can agree and where we have some differences and how we bridge those differences to get to a place where, you know, everyone may not get everything they want, but that we will get something that will really be significant in terms of child care universal child care, universal pre-K, home and community-based care, a significant investment in climate uh, change, even though it's, again, not going to be everything we would have wanted in there. Housing infrastructure, really important, the child tax credit, and many other things. So I think this is going to be a really, really significant bill for the American people to know that government's got their back and that, that democracy actually works. Your fellow progressive, Congressman Jimmy Gomez, had some rather harsh words about Senator Cinema earlier today. Take a listen. Kristen Cinema, I think, is someone that really doesn't have a, a policy center. She's all over the place. I don't really know what she wants. Is that fair criticism and is that constructive? I mean, you are trying to win her over. Well, look, I have been very clear. I don't criticize anybody, even when I might disagree with them, even when I'm frustrated. Um, but this is the frustration. We have 49 senators who are ready to do these tax increases. We have the American people. You know, this package becomes even more popular than it already is, which is very high approval rating, independents, Republicans and Democrats. But it becomes even more popular when you tell people that you're just going to make the wealthiest pay their fair share. And I think what the level of wealth inequality in this country and particularly during covid more billionaires created, even as people were wrapping around in food lines around the blocks. Um, I think people just feel like, come on, we elected Democrats in the House, the Senate, and the White House. Why can't you make this more fair so that I, a working person, do not have to pay more than my fair share because the richest won't pay? So that's the frustration you hear from Jimmy. He's on the, uh, the Ways and Means Committee that put together the list of tax uh, provisions. And so, you know, he's very close to that piece as well. And I, I, I understand the frustration, but obviously I'm trying to be, you know, we got to get everyone to the table. So we need everybody to, in this and we're working to get there. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. Always good to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jake. Be sure to tune in tonight to CNN's Town Hall with President Joe Biden. It starts at 8 p.m. You can see it only on CNN. 
Moments ago, the House making a decision that could theoretically send Steve Bannon to the pokey. What's the former president thinking right now? And asking for a friend, Republicans channeling Trump as they grill the attorney general today. The fireworks next. We have breaking news for you in our politics lead. In just the last hour, the U.S. US House of Representatives voted to approve the January 6th committee's report recommending that Trump ally Steve Bannon be held for criminal contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the committee investigating the insurrection. That contempt referral soon, we're told today, will head to the Justice Department with Attorney General Merrick Garland given the decision as to whether or not he will actually try to prosecute Bannon. The House vote fell largely along party lines, though nine House Republicans voted with all 220 Democrats to pass the resolution. Let's go right to CNN's Paula Reid. Paula, tell us more about these uh, nine Republicans. Not an easy vote. Not easy to go against your party. Not easy at all, Jake. And as you noted, the vote was largely along party lines. But in addition to committee members, Representative Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, seven other Republicans also voted to find Bannon in contempt including Representatives Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, Peter Meyer of Michigan, Fred Upton of Mich- also of Michigan, John Katko of New York, Nancy Mace of South Carolina, Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, Jamie Herrera-Butler of Washington, and also, interestingly, Representative Greg Pence, the brother of the former vice president, did not vote. Now, Representative Mace spoke after the vote, and she said for her, this is about being consistent about enforcing the subpoena power. She even signaled they might use it to investigate issues currently facing the Biden administration. Now, this bill gives Speaker Pelosi the authorization to ask the Justice Department to prosecute Bannon. We are told she will sign it and then send it to the Justice Department. We're told it would be delivered by clerk staff. Now, what might this mean, Paula, for Trump's former deputy White House chief of staff, Dan Scavino, who we're told has not cooperated with the committee yet. Well, now he knows how this ends if he doesn't cooperate. Now, he is in a little bit of a different position than Steve Bannon because he was in the administration at the time in question. So it is possible that he could potentially get some additional protection of privilege, but it's not clear at this point if President Biden will be willing to invoke that on his behalf. Now, we know he still has a couple weeks, even though his attorney has signaled he's not ready to cooperate. He has documents due next week, and then the week after, uh, he has been asked to do a deposition. But at this point, it's just not clear if they're going to come to an agreement, a compromise, or if he, too, could potentially be found in contempt. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Speaking of Steve Bannon, Attorney General Merrick Garland stuck to the Justice Department's talking points at his hearing on Capitol Hill today, saying that when it comes to Bannon, he will apply the facts and the law as to whether or not to prosecute him for contempt of Congress. The smorgasbord of a hearing also heavily featured Republicans pressing the attorney general on this October 4th memo from his office stating that the DOJ is worried about threats and attacks against teachers and school board members and will prosecute people, even parents, making those threats, quote, when appropriate. As CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, Garland was asked today about everything ranging from Trump to investigating sales of Hunter Biden's art. A snitch line on parents. The attorney general facing rapid fire from Republicans about an early October memo that has morphed into a rallying cry for conservatives. Are we, my friends, neighbors, constituents, are we domestic terrorists? 
No. This memo from the attorney general directs the FBI and federal prosecutors to meet with local school boards to discuss strategies to stop threats that some educators have faced when it comes to COVID protocols like mask mandates and the teaching of racial issues in class. Republicans are portraying the directive as an order to arrest parents who criticize school boards, a false narrative Garland repeatedly pushed back against. I want to be clear the Justice Department Uh, supports and defends the First Amendment right of parents to complain as vociferously as they wish. No, I do not think that parents getting angry at school boards for whatever reason constitute domestic terrorism. Democrats voiced their frustrations that the DOJ is still defending former President Trump in at least one case where he's been sued for defamation by magazine writer E. Jean Carroll. Yet we're defending President Trump's defamation lawsuit by a woman who he has defamed. We are not defending the defamation um, um, made by the former president. Um, As I've said uh, publicly several times, uh, sometimes being the attorney general and sometimes being the judge means taking positions with respect to the law that are required by the law. Uh, but which you would not uh, take uh, as a private citizen. Republicans refocused the conversation on the current president and his son, Hunter. The third painting, you may recognize this name, is a Hunter Biden. I don't don't recognize the painting. Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado spotlighting Hunter Biden's artwork as part of his push to get the DOJ to appoint a special counsel to look into the sale of these pieces of art for as much as $500,000 and into Hunter Biden's placement on the board of a Ukrainian energy company for $50,000 a month. I am asking you uh, now, will you appoint a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden? For the same reason that I'm not um, able to respond to questions about investigations of the former president or of anyone else, I'm not unable, able to discuss uh, any investigations pending or otherwise with respect to any uh, citizen of the United States. And the Justice Department is coming under fire from both the left and the right, and sometimes on the same issue. In fact, the prosecution of January 6th defendants has been a flashpoint, with the left asking questions about whether rioters are being punished enough. Republicans, though, asking Jake if prosecutors are being fair. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Appreciate it. A look at how Republicans are being forced to embrace the same voting rules they spent the past year attacking in a critical governor's race. Stay with us. More breaking news for you now. Just moments ago, a group of CDC advisors voted to recommend booster shots for eligible adults who got the Moderna vaccine or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now that decision goes to CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky for the final okay. So who is eligible for these boosters? The guidelines for Moderna are the same ones as for Pfizer. Anyone 65 or older, anyone 18 years and older who has a pre-existing condition, or anyone whose job puts them at higher risk for COVID exposure. For Johnson & Johnson booster shots, it's different. They're recommended for anyone 18 years and older who got a J&J shot more than two months ago. These booster shots could be available, theoretically, as soon as this weekend. Now to our politics lead. President Biden will join Virginia Democratic candidate for Governor Terry McAuliffe for a campaign stop next week in the D.C. suburb of Arlington. The governor's race is getting too close for comfort for Democrats. A new Monmouth poll shows Republican candidate for Governor Glenn Youngkin has seized the momentum. He's improving his numbers so much that he is now neck and neck with McAuliffe. The final few weeks of campaigning before Election Day are crucial in every race. 
But they're especially crucial in this race because early voting began in mid-September. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports, that means there have already been 35 election days in Virginia so far. Every day is election day. For more than a month now, that's been true in Virginia, which is why Debbie Weber is greeting voters outside the county election office. Hi there, how are you? And fielding questions about early voting. She's a GOP volunteer and is getting an earful from many of her fellow Republicans. They question the, uh, are these Dominion voting machines? As As far as I know, no, they're not. Okay, but that doesn't lessen the concern they have that that voting machines in general can be tampered with. That concern is unfounded. Yet this is the irony in the nail-biting Virginia governor's race, as Republicans are scrambling to urge their supporters to take advantage of early voting after casting aspersions on it for the last year. Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin have already cast their ballots early. Ah, we did it. Along with more than half a million Virginians and counting. It's a critical part of both campaign strategies, despite deep skepticism alive and well in the GOP. They used COVID in order to cheat with all of these ballots and all of this early voting and late voting. Fueled by former President Trump, who's still spinning conspiracy theories that come alive in conversations with Virginia Republicans like Colin Hayes. There's no reason to do mass early voting. I think that the uh, uh, a lot of the Democrat-run states have taken advantage of uh, the pandemic to expand it into their favor. He met Youngkin at a rally this week and plans to vote for him on the traditional election day, November 2nd. There's no such skepticism from Democrats. Top party officials tell CNN that McAuliffe's best chance to win is by banking such a sizable share of early votes that Youngkin can't catch up. Those that have not voted, make me a promise you'll go vote this week. We got to get early vote. Tonight, Vice President Harris is joining McAuliffe at a campaign rally to encourage Democrats to vote early. A message to be amplified in the days ahead with visits from President Biden and former President Obama. The Yunkin campaign has been aggressively promoting early voting, far more than most Republican candidates, trying to keep Democrats from building an insurmountable margin. Well, early voting is really important. Is there any hesitancy that you think yeah. you have to? But I don't think I don't, I don't think it, I don't think it is a hesitancy. It's a new thing. There. I don't think it's a skepticism. I think there's a lot of people who like going on election day and voting. Outside the early voting center, Weber says she and other volunteers have been instructed to turn any suspicions about election security into part of their sales pitch. The early voting is encouraged. Uh, Vote early. Um, They're making voting easy and cheating hard. That was the, the design from the Republican perspective. Now, both sides believe there will be record turnout in this race, surpassing the 2.6 million people who voted in 2017. And, Jake, that is driven largely by the early vote. It's why the vice president is on her way here for a rally tonight. And as you said, President Biden coming Tuesday. The White House keeping a very close eye on this race on November 2nd as a harbinger of things to come for next year's midterm election. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny on the campaign trail in glorious Virginia. Let's discuss with my Gus panel. Tia, uh, as Jeff reported, the Republican Party, Republican voters seem to have some rather existential questions about early voting, about the reliability of voting machines. Do you think that could actually hurt the Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin? 
I think so. And as we see the continuing effects of the big lie and the continued lie that we hear from former President Trump and his allies when it comes to elections and voting, it can because what we're hearing from Republicans is that they're not as confident, particularly when it comes to voting by mail and voting early. The question is whether Republican hesitance will be offset by Democrats' frustrations yeah. with their elected officials. And Laura, uh, one Democratic group leader told Politico, your publication, quote, I think we're on track to be a blue state for years and years because the growth here in Virginia makes that inevitable. But until then, we have a lot of suburban voters who are very swingy, and they decide these elections up and down the ticket. We will win this if folks turn out, but everyone should be very worried. And, t- and take a look at this. This is all the surrogates. Uh, that the Democrats are bringing in. You got at least a couple presidents there, a first lady, <laughs> a fir- second husband, VP, Klobuchar, a mayor, uh, Stacey Abrams, and the current governor. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of heavy hitters. Yeah, they're bringing in the big guns. Uh, the, I mean, 2018 speaks to exactly what that uh, lawmaker was saying, which is that Elaine Luria's district, uh, Abigail Spamberger's district, uh, those were one by tight margins, especially Spanbergers. And so turnout in a district like hers is going to be key for Democrats because, again, I remember going there in 2018, and they were independent swing voters who were deciding that they were tired of Donald Trump and that they were going to move towards Democrats, and some of that was based on gun control and some of it was based on immigration. But right now, um, they a lot of voters are frustrated because they're waiting for some action from Biden. They also are still dealing with the ramifications of the pandemic, which is clearly what is impacting Biden's numbers, as well as McCullough's. The, the problem with that all-star panel, you can't mm-hmm. deny it's an all-star panel of Democrats. Their names are not on the ticket. Right. It is Terry McAuliffe who is on the ticket, and he is not doing well. There is no momentum behind him. And to be honest, the Democratic Party doesn't have a lot of momentum, given their inability to get things done in Washington. On the flip side, Glenn Youngkin does have momentum. They've run a really smart campaign in terms of not peaking too soon and slow and steady wins the race. They've gone from five points behind, four points behind, to now it's a virtual dead heat. And the key to his success is he has been encouraging early voting. Uh, Speaking with the campaign, they have early campaign models. He needs to get about 34% of the early, uh, early voting numbers He's already at around 40. So they're looking at early voting numbers are strong. And the good thing what he's doing is speaking to the people of Virginia about what they care about, jobs, pocketbook issues, public safety and education. Whereas we have Terry McAuliffe, who is campaigning against Donald Trump, who's not on the ticket and cleaning up comments he said about public education and parents should not be involved in those decisions. Maria, I know you're eager to get in here, but uh, I want you to take a look at this new ad from the McAuliffe campaign, uh, which does get to what the McAuliffe campaign's basic message is. Take a look. Virginia, you have a lot of responsibility this year. Not only are you choosing your next governor, but you're also making a statement about what direction we're headed in as a country. Yeah, I'm glad you showed that because that is exactly right. Even though Alice says that it's Terry McAuliffe on the ballot, there's no question that Donald Trump should also be on the ballot. Look, Glenn Youngkin ran when he first started running in the primary. He coddled himself so tightly, embraced Donald Trump, and now he's trying to have it both ways. When he started running on conservative media, he said up and down that Donald Trump represented so many of the reasons as to why he's running for governor. I love it when Terry McAuliffe is trying to tie 
or is tying Youngkin to Donald Trump every chance he gets, because there is no question that if if Glenn Youngkin wins, it is going to be a place where Donald Trump is going to say, look what happens when you tie yourself to me. And that is going to put our democracy in peril. That's not the case. What Glenn Youngkin campaigned on was the policies of Donald Trump and certainly not the persona. If you want to talk about what kind of a candidate Glenn Youngkin is, he is more of a Ronald Reagan in terms of his tone and tenor. He's certainly not the temperament of Donald Trump. And that is why he is doing so well. He has also been out in the suburbs where those swingy people are and speaking with women and speaking with people that were disaffected by Donald Trump. And he is making tremendous inroads with him. And that's why he's doing so well. And the education um, that is such a a bad issue for Terry McAuliffe is one that Glenn Youngkin has been very strong on and making sure that parents have input in their education and making sure that um, safety in the schools is imperative. And Terry McAuliffe has really lost a lot of ground on education. I want to give you the final word on on this. Hopefully my mic mic is not working. Look, education is absolutely a key issue. And the fact of the matter is, is that uh, uh, Donald Trump is, along with Glenn Youngkin, focused on trying to take away uh, money and funding from public schools. Terry McAuliffe talks about a $2 billion investment in public schools. When you look at the growth of the demographics in Virginia, that is what they care about. Let's also take a look at the uh, mask mandates. If you look at all the polls, that is almost number one, a huge, huge issue for Virginians. And that is not a place where Glenn Youngkin is, I think, doing very well. I, I, I bet there are a lot of uh, uh, viewers we have in Virginia who right now wish that you two were the candidates. <laughs> that's, that, that's what I think. But this is the debate, right? The debate is whether or not Youngkin is, is doing better uh, with some of these local issues and whether or not uh, Terry McAuliffe's uh, basic idea, his basic pitch like, this isn't just Youngkin. This is Donald Trump. This is the direction in the, of the country on the ballot. And whether or not these suburban voters who do swing back and forth, whether which argument they'll find more compelling. And I think the race has really been nationalized in the way that they're talking about COVID-19 vaccine mandates and mass mandates and critical race mm-hmm. theory. Things that aren't necessarily... Which is not taught in Which is not right. taught in Thank schools, <laughs> but it's one of those things that pushes people's buttons, sure. gets them riled up, and what Youngkin is hoping is it gets them to vote for him. So they're not necessarily based in the reality of what's going on in schools, but it's based in what right now gets people active and activated. I think one important piece, though, one big story here in Virginia is about Trump because of the fact that Youngkin needs Trump's base and needs those loyal Republican voters to vote for him. And so you've seen Youngkin say on one hand that Biden won the election, but then just this month also said that there needed to be an audit of the Dominion voting machines. And so that is the wink and the nod to the Republican voters who, even though Youngkin is not saying he wants Trump to go out there and campaign for him, at the same time there are Trump advisors going to Virginia, former advisors, who at a rally pledged allegiance to a flag that they claimed was carried on January 6th. Which Youngkin distanced himself from. Yes, he called it weird and wrong. Right. But those voters, he is expecting to vote for him. And so there is a wink and a nod that is happening with Republican voters. And that's why I think this final ad is so important, because I actually do believe that nothing less than our democracy is on the line, because if Youngkin wins, that does not bode well for Democrats in the midterms. I think the key is the, the ad that McAuliffe had to do to say that Uh, his words that parents should not be involved in their children's education. He had to do an ad to to correct that, 
The fact that he's doing that goes to show that he realizes education is a bad spot for him and he's not in a good position. All right. Well, we're not going to resolve it right now, but uh, (laughs) this was a great debate. I appreciate it. Coming up, RSVP, no. Vladimir Putin skipping some key upcoming global events. It's raising eyebrows. Stay with us. In our world lead, Russian President Vladimir Putin making waves around the world this week. He pulled out of a global climate conference. He ended Russia's relationship with NATO, and he declined to raise natural gas exports to Europe, even amid skyrocketing prices. So what's behind these confusing decisions? As CNN's Sam Kiley reports, Putin's behavior may just be his way of distracting attention from worsening problems inside Russia. He's refused to attend the global climate conference. He's cut communication with NATO. He's accused of strangling Europe's natural gas supplies and of snubbing the G20 summit. Is Vladimir Putin a Russian bear lashing out? Or a wily Arctic fox spreading the blame? Skyrocketing European gas prices are up over 500% this year. Putin says that's not Russia's fault and it's easily fixed. If Europe allowed gas to flow to Germany down Russia's new pipeline, Nord Stream 2. Of course, if we could increase deliveries through this route, this would substantially ease tension on the European energy market. The Europeans have been slow to adopt the pipeline, fearing dependence on Russian gas. Russia closed its diplomatic mission to NATO on Monday, officially in response to NATO's expulsion of eight of its diplomats, whom NATO accused of spying earlier this month. But Putin's also reacting to tensions in the Black Sea and NATO muscling into alliances in Eastern Europe, which he sees as Russia's back garden. We did not come to the suburbs of Washington or New York to conduct drills. They came to us and conducted them at our borders. How should we react to this? Russian troops illegally occupy territory in neighboring Georgia and Ukraine. The United States will continue to provide assistance to enhance the maritime capacities of not only Ukraine, but also Georgia, Romania, and Bulgaria. We have long understood the importance of cooperation and unity among allies and partners to deter Russian aggression. Not perhaps an incentive for Putin to play nice at the G20 and the global COP26 climate summits. This is a positive message to those who are inviting him. If he decides that he would rather have a a video conference with a certain group of people, that also tells you something. Raising tensions abroad may be a useful way for Putin to distract attention from the critical COVID crisis at home, where death tolls are breaking records daily. Putin has ordered all Russians off work for a week at the end of this month, and Moscow will face tight restrictions on movements next week. Russia's vaccination program still hasn't reached about two-thirds of the Russian population. That, it seems, is the fault of Russians. Unfortunately, we see the dangerous consequences of the low level of vaccination in our country. But as winter approaches and Russia suffers international isolation, many Russians may begin to tire of their leader's snarls. Now, Jake, it's quite difficult to assess uh, in this country how Russians are really feeling because the domestic press has been increasingly muzzled. We're very aware of the crackdowns that have been seen in the past. Now, legislation recently 
introduced, being implemented to a designated an awful lot of local media as foreign agents, drastically restricting their abilities and self-identifying in some cases as traitors. It is having a very substantial effect on uh, the local media here. So as these criticisms are getting louder internationally, they're more muzzled here in places like Moscow, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Moscow. We have some breaking news for you on the hunt for Brian Laundrie. What did the FBI announce just moments ago? Stay with us. Breaking news. Just moments ago, the FBI announced that after comparing dental records, they have confirmed that the human remains found in the Florida Nature Park are indeed those of Brian Laundrie. Let's get straight to CNN's Layla Santiago, who's in Sarasota County, Florida. Layla, what else is the FBI saying? Well, Jake, let me send you straight to the tweet from FBI that confirms this. It says, on October 21st, 2021, a comparison of dental records confirmed that the humane, or excuse me, the human remains found at the team Mabry Carlton Jr. Memorial Reserve in the Mayakahatchee Creek Environmental Park are those of Brian Laundrie. So a very big question answered in just the last 10 minutes in terms of who did these human remains belong to? We now know uh, that they are of Brian Laundrie. We have also learned that not too long ago, police visited the home of Brian Laundrie's parents. Uh, so uh, we're, we're waiting to get more information on exactly what sort of exchange they had. But this came just before the FBI tweeted out the new information that those human remains that were found yesterday belong to Brian Laundry. Still a lot of questions here, Jake. We know uh, that the, remain, the remains belong to him, but we don't know how he died. And uh, we also have a lot of questions about the belongings that police say they found near where those skeletal remains were found, which, by the way, I actually just spoke to Northport Police, one of the assisting agencies in this investigation. They tell me that it was about 40-minute walk from where we are right now uh, and that they not only found a backpack, which we learned yesterday from the FBI, as well as a notebook, but that they also found clothing that belonged to Brian Laundry that was consistent with what he was wearing when he was last seen. So uh, a very major development as to uh, knowing now that it was Brian Laundry's remains that were found here uh, near the Carlton Reserve or in the Carlton Reserve, that 25,000 acre area where teams have spent weeks searching for him. All right. A sad end to a horrible story. Leila Santiago, thanks so much. In our Earth Matters series, the destabilizing effects of climate change are a growing threat to national security. That is the stark warning in a series of new reports from the U.S. intelligence community on the challenges that the climate crisis poses to global stability. Among the challenges outlined in the reports is the critical role climate change is playing in creating refugees and driving migration worldwide and at the U.S. southern border. Let's get more on these new dire warnings with CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir. Uh, Bill, you've been traveling the world covering climate change for CNN for years. What do you say to this new climate change assessment from the intelligence community? Well, Jake, it's uh, really what's striking is that there's not all that new here. Uh, Back in 1990, 31 years ago, the Naval War College just started using the term climate change as a throat multiplier. The first President Bush had it in his national security strategy. There have been dozens, dozens of warning reports from NASA, NOAA, the Pentagon, uh, everyone in federal government. And this is more urgent, of course, because now we have a lot more specifics 
to put on those multiple threats? What happens when 80 million people who depend on the Nile Delta for food and water uh, lose that and head for Europe? What happens when the Himalayan glaciers melt, giving less water to Pakistan and India? What happens when climate migrants from Central America surge north after droughts or hurricanes? We know that the naval base in Norfolk it has to be moved now as a result of, of rising seas. But of course, the gap between the warnings and the action in Congress is stark. Oh, pretty stark indeed. The, the Homeland Security and Defense Department both released separate reports outlining the extreme threat posed by the climate crisis. Uh, yet, as you know, there, there doesn't seem to be a matching urgency uh, from elected officials to do anything, with some exceptions, of course. Of course. You know, the Biden's Build Back Better plan is the most ambitious sort of climate package in there. Uh, it costs about $350 billion a year. The most effective, analysts say, would be incentivizing power companies to get off of coal and gas and get to clean sources of energy, solar and wind. Uh, there, the Joe Manchins of the world say that is too expensive. But it's interesting that just this week they gave the Pentagon $10 billion more than they asked for and twice as much as what that Build Back Better plan would cost. So at least, you know, the Pentagon is getting the money they're going to need to fight these multiple threats. Future generations are not going to judge these, these decades uh, kindly. Um, the Biden administration says, Bill, that current policies and pledges are insufficient to meet the goals laid out in the landmark 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. What's the effect of that? Well, to put that in perspective, of the almost 200 countries that signed on to Paris, only one of them is actually on target to meet their promise, and that is the Gambia, the tiny country in Africa. Nobody is really doing the practical work, the hard work of decarbonizing their economies anywhere really in the world. Of course, the United States has put more planet cooking pollution in the atmosphere than any other historically, so as the, should take the moral lead. But at the same time, I'm in Charleston shooting a documentary they're planning a billion-dollar seawall here. They're completely rezoning how and where to build in this city here because the reality... Oh, we just lost uh, Bill Weir, but thanks to Bill Weir from South Carolina for that report. We're just two hours away from CNN's town hall with President Joe Biden. Your questions at this critical moment coming up. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.